Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 15, Beaubaton and Dormstrang. Early next morning, Harry woke with a plan fully formed in his mind, as though his sleeping brain had been working on it all night. He got up, dressed in the pale dawn light, left the dormitory without waking Ron, and went back down to the deserted common room. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So, possibly the strangest thing that I own is in a box that I keep. I have this box, which has, like, the front covers of all the playbills of shows I've seen and postcards from friends from all over the world and all the love letters I've ever gotten. And I have a letter in that box that's 15 years old and that I've never read. And so this letter is from this guy whose name I will change for the sake of the story. His name is Devin. And I transferred to Wash U, as I've talked about on the show before, and I transferred at the same time as Devin. And in that way that you become friends with someone in college, the first month or so of school, we, like, got meals together. And he was, like, really nice. And he would, like, come by my dorm room to, like, pick me up to go to dinner. And I was applying for the creative writing program at Wash U, which you, like, needed to apply in order to be able to take classes there. And he read two of my stories and helped me decide which one to turn in for my application. And... But the friendship didn't last very long because there was a transition in the friendship where things got weird. The first thing that happened was my roommates knew Devin because he would come by sometimes. And I went to bed one night at like 12 or 1 in the morning. And I woke up an hour or so later and he was in my bed. Whoa. Yeah. And like this wasn't a normal thing. It's not like he ever slept over or was in my bed or sat on my bed. Like, this was a shocking thing. I woke up and was like, what is happening? Found that he was in my bed, and he acted like this was normal. He was like, oh, I thought that this would be fine. And I was like, I don't know why you would think this would be fine. Get out. And we talked about it the next day, and he just super tried to normalize it, that, like, this was something that people did in college and he thought it was fine and was sorry that it upset me. I sort of was like, okay, our friendship is over, but, like, fine, right? And so we would run into each other for the rest of the semester, and I was polite enough, and there was some distance. Until second semester, I showed up to my creative writing class, and he was in my creative writing class, and that was very strange because he was an economics major, and he was not uh, creative writing anything, and he signed up to workshop his short story first. And so I go home that afternoon with his story, and it was one of my stories. It was the story that he had told me not to apply with. 
So he had just put his name on my story. And that was when I was like, okay, there's something really unhealthy happening here. And so I went and I met with the school counselor. And she said something that just helped me so much. She said, this is not about you. Often women who are being stalked feel as though they can't talk about these things because it feels like humble bragging of like, oh, I'm so great that this person is stalking me. And she was like, it's nothing good that you've done. It's nothing bad that you've done. This is somebody who's going through a really hard time and has fixated on you. It has nothing to do with you. What you have to do is, you know, make a boundary and keep it and do not give any sign that you are willing to waver on that boundary. I ended up putting in writing and having a conversation with him being like, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to acknowledge you in class. You have invaded my space and we're done. And it didn't stop. But for some reason, because it was this boundary, to be honest, for the most part, I didn't think about it. Until a summer, I was home, and Devin was also from Los Angeles. And so one day I came home from work while I was home, and my dad was like, Devin stopped by. And I was like, that's weird. He knows that I don't want to speak to him. And he was like, yeah, he dropped off this rug, and we, like, rolled it out. And it was like a four-by-six rug with a depiction of Noah's Ark. And he left you this note, and he handed me this handwritten note that was sort of, like, written on in a disoriented way. And I was like, I don't want to read that. (laughs) And we trashed the rug. And my dad and I sort of like shrugged at each other. And so I sort of filed away the note. And since then, Devin, you know, has done other things. But for the most part, this is like dissipated. And I haven't heard from him much in the last five to eight years, I would say. But what's so weird is that I still have that note. And I've never read that note. And so I don't know whether or not I like count this as a trauma in my life. It didn't consume me, but it was certainly a distraction. I can't get myself to trash the note, nor could you pay me enough money to read the note. And so I was in thinking about the nature of trauma in this chapter, I thought of Snape threatening the students with poisoning them. I was like, that is like a deeply traumatizing thing to threaten students. And then I was sort of forgiving when Hagrid threatened Draco to turn him into a ferret. And I was like, why do we consider certain things to be traumas and other things to sort of be incidents? I'm interested in that and talking about that with you this week, Casper, is like, what is the nature of trauma? When is something a trauma rather than an injury? Whoa. Yeah. That is such an intense story. I know. And I'm so sorry it happened. Thanks. But like I said, I really, it's like not a thing. Right. But you've kept the note. That's what's interesting to me. And I'm excited to think about, especially like how traumatic events live on in our lives, sometimes in invisible ways. And I, Oh, I'm totally fixated about this note. Well, let's dig into these questions in just a moment. Because first, Beaubaton and Durmstrang, here we go. Three, two... One, go. Um, Harry writes a letter to Sirius being like, just kidding, Miss Garden hurt. And then Hermione is like, I can't believe you lied to Sirius. Ugh. And then they go to um, they go to uh, classes really hard. And um, Hagrid is like, um, I'm going to get you, Malfoy. And Snape is like, I'm going to poison all of you. And um, Moody has them practice the Imperious Curse a lot. And then it's very exciting. Durmstrang and Bobaton are going to arrive. And we meet Madame Maxime and Karkarov. And <gasps> we meet the famous Quidditch player whose name I can't remember right now. He's there. <laughs> Victor Crumb is there. I can't tell you how little I care about sports. 
Even in the books, I'm like, hell. I stayed up last night to watch the quarterfinal with Carl Edmund, who beat the world number three and is in the semifinals. It's very exciting for him. I literally don't know what sport you're talking about. Tennis. Tennis. Actually, it's totally related because he beat Gregor Dimitrov, who's the world number three, who is from Bulgaria. Is there like a a tournament happening? Yeah. Which one? The Australian Open. Oh, the Australian Open is yeah. happening right now. That's one of the four gr- that make up the that. Grand Slam. That's right. I like no things. I just don't care. Okay. Okay. Are you ready for your turn? Yes, I am. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay. So we get to meet the two other schools this chapter. It's very exciting. Um, Dumstrang arrives after Beaubaton. Beaubaton arrives in like what Dennis Creevy describes as a flying house, which I think is genius. But it's a carriage with these like terrifying, enormous horses who only drink single malt whiskey and have red eyes. And Madame Maxine is enormous. And I had totally forgotten that there are both boys and girls who come from Beaubaton. I think the movie had shifted my understanding. Anyway, and then Dumstrang arrives in the lake and there's a big mast. Be lovely to be you, where you're like, I don't need to recap everything. I just get to talk about what interests me. Because you did such a great job no, on the practical things. No. Let's start with the thing that you absolutely didn't mention in your 30 second recap. The most important thing in this chapter that happens, which is the imperious curse moment. So, Moody slash Crouch, Moody, is teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts, and he decides to teach the imperious curse. And so Moody has each kid try to cast off the Imperious Curse. So he casts an unforgivable curse on every single student. And then Harry is the only one who's, like, decent at fighting it. And so Moody has Harry practice, like, four or five times until Harry can cast off the Imperious Curse. Which is remarkable, you know, in the first lesson to be able to resist that kind of curse from an experienced wizard. The first thing is that being under the curse kind of reminded me of being intoxicated, which I don't drink. So I've never had this experience, but hearing other people talk about it is kind of a blurry happiness, forgetting everything, maybe doing things that are a little stupid and potentially really dangerous. Under the curse, Moody is telling him, jump on this table. And Harry's brain is going like, no, why should I? And he half jumps onto it and half resists it, which means that he crashes into the table and really injures himself. But the experience is not wholly bad. There's something pleasurable about it. So that reminded me of a thing that we talked about a few weeks ago, which is you said that you like going to the dentist because it's a place where there's like an adult in charge. Yes. And I wonder if that's what's comforting about the Imperious Curse. Someone else is in charge. Someone else is in charge. You're like, I don't have to make any decisions. (laughs) It didn't remind me of intoxication. It reminded me of like somebody coming in and taking charge of a situation and how comforting that is that's true yeah there's something cultish about it like Mm -hmm. it feels good in the moment and only later do you look back and you're like what was i doing and i mean we know that many wizards and witches don't even remember what they did while they were under the imperious curse yeah what it made me think of the fact that it feels good made me think about the fact that sometimes when you hear people talk about traumatic things that have happened to them, a lot of the guilt associated around it is that it will have felt good, right? You hear that a lot around, like, sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. It's like, I didn't like that he was touching me like that, but it felt good, right? And how confusing it can be when your sort of body betrays you and something feels technically pleasurable and yet 
emotionally and psychologically and even physically is violating and traumatic. I feel like tickling is a great example of this <laughs> often, right? So I hate being tickled, in case that's not clear, because you're making my body laugh even though it is uncomfortable that you are touching me in these places or in that way. Right. And that's maybe what's so interesting in this chapter is that we see the class have the shared experience of being controlled in ways that they're not comfortable with and being laughed at, right? Moody makes them do silly things and potentially dangerous things. But Harry's experience of withstanding that maybe is one of the key reasons why he's able to step into such leadership later in this book and really in the books to come is that he has survived this experience of control. And there's something in that of withstanding a traumatic event or, or living through it that enables him to take leadership in this powerful way. Yeah, and that gets to the root of what I was haunted by in thinking about trauma, which is what is the difference between trauma and pain? Mm-hmm. When does something bad tip over into trauma? When are we like, and that was traumatic. And so I was thinking, right, like if you're sore after a run, that is pain that is part of strengthening. But if you sprain your ankle because you ran too hard, that actually is a trauma to your body that makes you weaker because you have to stay off of your ankle. And so there's something in there, right, that there are forms of pain that strengthen you. And then there are forms of pain that are traumatic and weaken you. It's like you can run 10 miles over and over and over again, and it can just be a good thing. And then you trip over a stone and you sprain your ankle. Sometimes it's almost arbitrary what flips something from painful to traumatic. Yeah, that's such an interesting juxtaposition, what the difference is between those two. And I'm also really struck by the idea of it's something to do with integration. If there's pain that we haven't been able to integrate into a story of who we are and why we're here, then it stays this disruptive, traumatic thing. Well, if it's something that we've been able to create a narrative around that helps us become who we are and we're glad for who we are in this moment, then it doesn't have this power over us. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it can be both, right? It can be You know, we're watching right now all of these women, these gymnasts come forward and have the opportunity to confront Dr. Nasser. And I think that some of them are able to turn this into advocacy and education. I think that you're right. And what potentially makes me uncomfortable about what you're saying is that if you don't come up with a productive story, it's your fault that this has stayed a trauma. And I know that's not what you're saying. But I think that there are times where, like, There is no positive spin on the story or you're not capable of doing it yet. Well, especially when things that have happened to you or your parents or ancestors is not actually at an individual level, but it's at a systemic level. How do you make meaning of slavery or the Holocaust, right? Like they're beyond that. And I mean, when you look at generational trauma, that is real. How it affects people's health, both physical and mental, there are actual indicators that demonstrate the impact of those events that happened, you know, multiple decades ago. But I think even in this chapter, we see a little moment where Draco is made fun of by Hagrid. They're talking about these dreaded blast-ended scroots and Malfoy's being his usual belligerent self. And Hagrid says, well, watch out because I'll do what Moody did to you, which was transform him into an animal and bounce him up and down on the ground multiple times. Like this was physical violence, whatever we think of Draco, like this was way beyond the line. And so Hagrid bringing that up silences Draco, which is really one of the very few times we've seen anyone able to do that. And I think we see that Draco is still in 
this state of shock, state of trauma from what's happened to him. And it both threatens him physically, like I might be hurt again, but it also threatens him socially. Like, I'm going to exclude you. I'm going to make fun of you. I'm going to make you look like a fool, which, you know, Draco has done many times. So here's a taste of his own medicine. But you see that moment of not being able to integrate something that's happened into my story of myself, which, which I do think is a powerful example with the shortcomings that you identified. I'm going to say something that I feel like is going to get us a lot of pushback, but shame on Hagrid. I know that Draco is a bully and a jerk, but this is a generational difference. This is a power difference. Hagrid is the teacher. Hagrid should be punishing Draco within the framework of what exists. I'm not sure that moments like this aren't why Draco becomes an attempted Death Eater. If Hagrid was like, do you know what? You're actually required to come back later and be with the blast-ended scroots because otherwise you're going to get detention. That is a requirement, Draco. And sits and talks to Draco for half an hour. Even if it is miserable for that entire half hour, Draco is going to remember for the rest of his life that somebody invested time in him. I know we joke a lot about failed pedagogy at Hogwarts, but this is awful. And I think it was reading it in the context of trauma. Draco probably still has PTSD from this ferret incident. He's not been able to integrate it into a story of himself yet. And Hagrid is just like pushing on this wound. Well, and this is why I think this moment is so interesting, because of course, the only reason that Hagrid is resorting to that is because he himself is traumatized, right? Hurt people hurt people. That is so true. And I I wanted to share with you, Vanessa, I just did this amazing thing, which sounds a little crazy, but I want you to stay with me. I downloaded a seven-day meditation series. It's from Preside Meditation. It's called like a healing meditation or something, seven-day healing journey. And basically, there's this wonderful guy called Artie Wu, who records like 20 minute things that you listen to one every day. And it's really is supposed to deal with these kind of questions of how do I stop cycles of violence? How do I shift my experience of trauma, whether that's feeling rejected or unloved, whether it's challenging thought patterns and voices in our head, you know, you're not good enough or whatever it is. And the way he framed how pain gets transferred from generation to generation was so compelling to me. And I think that's what Hagrid is dealing with, right? Like he feels like he's always an outsider. Even though he has this great physical strength, he feels powerless to navigate the systems of authority. And so he is putting on Draco exactly the things that were put on him. And that's both the horror of trauma, but also the opportunity is that if we can shift some of those patterns from how we've been hurt in terms of how we treat other people, like that's how we stop those systems of pain. I love all that. This semester, I'm a teaching fellow for our class on journey and quest with Stephanie Paulsell, friend of the podcast. And one of the things that she was talking about in the lecture last night, that the hardest part of a journey isn't the part where you're away from home. It's actually the part where you come back home. That's so true. And you try to reintegrate the lessons that you've learned Mm -hmm. into a place where you have to return. Mm -hmm. And again, I just think this gets to like Snape and Hagrid should not be hanging out at the sites of their traumas. And I think that the problem is that maybe they have, as adults, learned that these are not great resources. You should not be mocking children for traumatic things that have happened to them. But because Hagrid is at the site of so much trauma, because it was Draco's father who tried to kill his pet just a few months ago, because of all these complicated things, Hagrid is just like re-traumatized. I think this really speaks to like sometimes we have to reintegrate somewhere new. We can't go home again. We have to create a new home or blow up the relational 
elements that made that home the place that we left in the first place. Mm. And I, again, I want to say that this does have something to do with systems. If you don't have a lot of means, you can't afford to leave home, right? And Hagrid and Snape, to a large extent, because of war, and because they're in the middle of a battle, like Dumbledore can't allow them to leave. And Hagrid, because of his identity as a half giant, would have a hard time leaving. Right. Like, I'm not saying, why don't you just get up and get out of this, like, tough situation? I'm just trying to point out that the fact that they cannot leave makes what they have to do harder. But I still think that they are grown-ups and teachers and that we need to hold them accountable. This is terrible. I think that is so insightful. It also reminds me of maybe one of the challenges for Hagrid especially is that we don't really see him acknowledging his pain anywhere. He just drinks away. He just drinks away. Like that's the way in which he is able to soothe and kind of shield himself from the pain that is real. And I had one of the most unexpected conversations with my therapist maybe a year and a half ago where I was talking about my coming out process. And I said, you know, God, it was so easy compared to so many other people. I have wonderful parents who made it very clear that I was accepted and loved just how I was. I have an out gay uncle who's been with his partner for 25 years. Like literally, it couldn't have been easier. And he said to me, Casper, it sounds like you're ashamed about the pain that you did feel. And I was like, whoa. Because even if Hagrid's like, I'm fine. I'm a teacher at Hogwarts. I'm I'm half giant and look at all the privilege I have. Exactly. I feel like he's not yet acknowledged the pain that he does feel. And we get introduced in this chapter to Madame Maxine, who's in exactly the same position. She even rejects that identity still. So I feel like there's something very powerful about that. Like, unless we acknowledge the pain that we have felt, it's really impossible to heal from the pain. And I want to say, right, like, just because you had an out uncle, like, doesn't mean that culture doesn't show you that a couple's supposed to look like a man and a woman. And I want to be, there's still pain associated with anything like that, even in the best of circumstances. Right, right. And I think there's something beautiful about, like, counting your blessings. But I completely agree with you. I think that it's not something that's pleasant to do. And I think it's something that, it's not a skill that we're taught. No. There's no expression of, like, Deal with your pain, right? There's count your blessings. There's like be grateful. Write down five things that you're grateful for. But there isn't wallow in your pain. Right. (laughs) Well, and the other thing is is that we as a country have found a way to commodify days of mourning. Israel has Yom HaShoah, which is the day of Holocaust remembrance. Mm. And a siren goes off for a minute. And no matter what you are doing Mm. in the world, the siren goes off everywhere. You park your car in the middle of the street and you get out of your car and you stand. It is insane. Mm. The country comes to a standstill. Whereas in the United States, we have Veterans Day, we have Memorial Day, we have Martin Luther King's Day, which is a day of remembrance of really hard things. And we're like, sales, barbecues, right? (laughs) Whereas like, what if we really use these days of mourning? And I sort of think we should have like a national holiday for trauma day, Mm. where we all just get to be sad and think about how hard it is to be alive. Being alive has loss associated with it. And and that's okay. Or we need to just like protect things like Memorial Day and Martin Luther King Day from like tweetable quotes and sales on sheets.
Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and we are continuing with sacred imagination. And so I've chosen a passage for you. Let me turn to the right page. So I'm going to invite you and everyone who's able to safely to close your eyes and just focus on what are the sensations that you experience? What can you see? What can you smell? What can you hear? What are you touching? And what do you taste? And who are you in this passage? Who do you find yourself embodying? A boy in pale blue robes jumped down from the carriage, bent forwards, fumbled for a moment with something on the carriage floor, and unfolded a set of golden steps. He sprang back respectfully. Then Harry saw a shining high-heeled black shoe emerging from the inside of the carriage, a shoe the size of a child's sled, followed almost immediately by the largest woman he had ever seen in his life. The size of the carriage and of the horses was immediately explained. A few people gasped. Harry had only ever seen one person as large as this woman in his life, and that was Hagrid. He doubted whether there was an inch difference in their heights, yet somehow, maybe simply because he was used to Hagrid, this woman, now at the foot of the steps and looking around at the waiting, wide-eyed crowd, seemed even more unnaturally large. As she stepped into the light flooding from the entrance hall, she was revealed to have a handsome, olive-skinned face, large, black, liquid-looking eyes, and a rather beaky nose. Her hair was drawn back in a shining knob at the base of her neck. She was dressed from head to foot in black satin, and many magnificent opals gleamed at her throat and on her thick fingers. Dumbledore started to clap. The students, following his lead, broke into applause too, many of them standing on tiptoe, the better to look at this woman. What happened? I was Madame Maxime. <gasps> what did you feel? What happened? I I know I'm making an entrance, right? Mm. And I know that everybody is going to be shocked at my size. And what it made me think about was the moment before she stepped out of the carriage, if she, like, had to gather her courage. Because everybody at Bobaton is now, like, used to the way that I look. They know. But... I'm about to make this entrance, and I know the students have no idea what I look like, what is going to come out of here. I've chosen to wrap myself in black satin, which I think that's very different than the way Hagrid has chosen to dress Mm. himself. So she still feels entitled to feel glamorous and beautiful, and I have this sort of, like, severe bun at the back of my head, so I would imagine that she was, like, checking her hair to make sure everything was in line. And then putting on this shield of pride and beauty as I've stepped out. And I've also had to make the conscious decision to ignore the gasps that I know I'm about to hear. I am looking for Dumbledore, and I'm going to walk straight toward him. You know what really strikes me about this is that this entrance is all about signaling confidence. Exactly like you said, that the clothes she's wearing, the way that she's not, you know, trying to hide her size, she's using her size to make a statement. And that seems so in contrast with the fact that she's unwilling to integrate this giantess identity that she also has and the way that she rejects Hagrid later in the book. I'm going to really be thinking about that, like how we can project so much confidence. And yet the thing that impresses people is actually the thing that we're ashamed of sometimes. I mean, that resonates with me. People often will call that like overcompensating for the things that you're ashamed of, Mm. when really I think that often the very things that you're proud of also can be complicated, right? I'm proud of my confidence in being like a self-assured woman. And then every once in a while, 
I get really self-conscious about it. And I'm like, what if I'm self-assured and confident and I'm just walking around the world embarrassing myself all the time, (laughs) right? And it's not that I'm secretly ashamed and overcompensating. It's just that anything that you take too much for granted about yourself, I think there are moments of doubt. And so it's entirely possible that she is confident, like she's a beautiful woman, and she often enjoys her size and that men are intimidated by her and that people stare at her and are awestruck by her. And there are other times where she's like, are people laughing at me? And if they knew that I was half giant, they wouldn't love this about me. But it's possible to me that she's not just overcompensating, but that she does love a lot of being a large, powerful woman. And even just getting to the position to be headmistress of a school like Beaubaton speaks to both her skill in terms of magic, but also her way of carrying herself and the ways she's had to like navigate systems of power. Casper, who were you? Were you Harry in yeah, this moment? I felt myself watching yeah. Madame Maxine coming in. And, and so what did you notice? It's such an exciting moment, you know, especially for Harry, who's thought that Hogwarts is the only wizarding school in the world. And there's this whole new landscape that's opening up for him. So it's another way in which the magical world is expanding. And I think the thing that struck me was that his comparison between Maxime and, and Hagrid to both bring her into his realm of experience. You know, she is like this person I know and love, but also to bring Hagrid into a broader context of, oh, he's not alone. He's not the only one. He's not this kind of freak show in a way, like that there's a broader landscape of people like Hagrid. And I think maybe it opens up a little bit of a question for Harry of, actually, I don't know much about Hagrid's backstory. Okay, I know about the drama of his expulsion, but like what happened before that? And tell me more about his parents. So I'm wondering if it's through her face and her physicality, we're actually seeing a new question emerge in Harry's mind about one of the people he cares most about. And I love in these moments that Harry is not the center of attention. Harry is just one of the students. There's this sweetness about Harry's excitement here. It's innocent. He's not worrying about Sirius. He's not worrying about Voldemort. He's just present, seeing something new. In the moments when I was in Harry's mind, it reminded me of early times at the airport Mm. where you're like, oh, my God, there are Amish people and Orthodox Jewish people and people in hijabs and and there are young children. And they're right. Like the airport is this great place where you just see people from all over the world and of all different backgrounds. And you're like, oh, I I know that these people exist. And here they are all in one terminal. And how exciting it is to see the world outside of your familiar context. I love that analogy. It is the perfect one. Yeah. It's time for this week's voicemail. And we should say we got a lot of emails and tweets and voicemails reminding us that Trelawney's prediction of Harry's birthday could still be correct because Voldemort's birthday is on New Year's Eve and she's predicting a midwinter birthday. And of course, Voldemort lives in Harry in the Horcrux. So thank you for reminding us when we fall short of Harry Potter knowledge. And thank you for validating my gut that Trelawney was probably right. (laughs) So even though my Harry Potter knowledge was wrong, my gut was right. And that's what matters. That's all that matters. On to this week's voicemail. Hi, Vanessa, Ariana, and Casper. I wanted to tell my story from something that Vanessa asked in the episode Mayhem at the Ministry, and I would like to stay anonymous for this, possibly. So Vanessa asked why our friend George working on their visas visit visas in front of Molly. Uh, They can work on this wherever, but they're doing it right in front of her, even though she's forbidden them. And right when you asked that, this is probably the first time I even noticed this, and related to friend George. So... 
I'm a Muslim. I was born in Pakistan, and I lived the first 18, 19 years of my life there. And I talked to my mom almost every day and have over the past few years since I came to U.S. And over the last couple of years, our conversations have become much more real considering the content. I talked to her about patriarchy and racism and situations within Pakistan. And we don't necessarily agree on things. And the reason I'm telling these differences is because at the end of the day, I want my mom's approval. And this feeling has only strengthened over the previous year. Last year... I came out as gay, mostly to myself, since a large part of my social circle doesn't necessarily accept that. And now I know who I am and what I want, but I also want that seal of approval from the one person I still love the most. Now, granted, I haven't seen my mom in over, like, three, four years. I still call her daily. We talk, and I still bring up things that I know she might get mad at. But part of me wants to know what her reaction might be to something that I might tell her later, if ever. Just like Fred and George, they probably already know that they don't want to be focusing on studies much. They want to start this business if it kicks off within this year. They have plans. And for them, it is important to reason with Molly consistently and in small doses, sort of, and be able to talk since the beginning rather than dumping something really big on Molly all of a sudden. And I know this sounds selfish or manipulative of the kids, but then again, looking at myself, I don't think there's a second option, especially if you want to keep that person in your life and live the life you want to live. Hope this made sense. It's just a moment that I related so strongly with and felt like I should share. Thank you so much for that voicemail. And I'm so, first of all, I'm so impressed that you have such a close loving, intimate connection with your mom, even though you haven't seen each other in person for three or four years. I commend you on that, first of all. And and the way in which you're navigating these competing loyalties is very familiar. And it's really hard. So I really appreciate this voicemail. I also think you highlight such a beautiful point from your own life and also, you know, with Fred and George and Molly, which is I don't think Fred and George have any doubt that Molly will love them no matter what, but they want Molly to approve of their decisions and to like them and respect their choices and see that they are making choices about their career and about how they want to spend their lives and aren't just being lazy. And so I think that that's a really helpful distinction that you're helping us see that we often know that people will love us no matter what, but we want more than unconditional love. Unconditional love is great, but we also want the conditional stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's that moment, right, where, like, your mom tells you you're beautiful, and you're like, but you have to think that. (laughs) It doesn't count, Mom. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like, it obviously counts more than anything, and then on this other level, it sometimes feels like it doesn't count. And the other thing is that it's hard to feel that the unconditional love is real if we're not completely honest about who we are. It feels like we're only loved for the bit that people know about and this other bit is unlovable or is not worthy. And that desire to integrate and to be a wholeness, I think, is so clear both in the twins and in this beautiful story in the voicemail. That's really interesting. We need the conditional love. To make the unconditional real. Yeah. Casper, who are you going to bless this week? 
I was nearly going to bless Dennis Creevy because he's my new fave. But there was something that struck me in rereading the chapter this time, which was Professor Binns, who I'm going to give my blessing to today. We learned that there's a lot of homework being given. And among that, Professor Binns is making the right essays on the goblin rebellions of the 18th century, which seems on face value to be something, you know, not interesting to anyone. And it suddenly made me think, you know, Professor Binns is Although he's a ghost, although he's not part of the kind of daily drama of the Hogwarts school, he's very conscious about what's happening in the context of history. And I actually think that there are two reasons that he's assigning consistently these essays about the Goblin Rebellions. One, I think he's trying to demonstrate the value of other magical creatures' worth and their stories and their histories. And I think that might be one of the reasons why Hermione is so interested in the house elves. But I also think he's teaching his students about social justice, like movement strategy by examining previous efforts to to shift systems of power. I think one of the ways in which you learn to change things is by learning how other people have changed things before. So I want to bless Professor Binns for for passing on knowledge and wisdom from the past to, to his students today. I love that blessing. How about you? Who's your blessing for this week? So I would like to bless Professor Trelawney because I was struck in reading this chapter through this theme that Professor Trelawney is one of the only people, one of the only adults who doesn't gloss over trauma. I don't want to say she celebrates trauma, but, you know, there's a moment in this chapter where Harry and Ron, who have completely made up all these catastrophic things that are going to happen to them, and Trelawney is, like, so proud of them. She has them read their answers aloud. And there is something funny about that, but there's also – she's saying, like, catastrophe is not something to be ashamed of. Mm. Catastrophe is something that we can talk about in public, and we can talk about our fears, and there might be a certain level of catharsis that's happening in this classroom. And so I want to, you know, bless Professor Trelawney for, like, not being afraid of talking about terrible things. And we don't want to glorify these awful things. And I think that's a fine line that maybe she's on the wrong side of. But I just want to bless her for creating a space in which difficult things can be discussed. Mm, Beautiful. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. Send us a voicemail with a blessing for a character to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 16, The Goblet of Fire, which, don't be confused, that's also the title of the book, through the theme of resentment. This week's episode is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkyle, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. Thanks to our anonymous listener who sent this week's voicemail, to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and to Stephanie Purcell. And this week we want to offer a couple of extra thank yous. We want to thank Mike Motia, Amanda Morajon, and to Julia Argy, who says that the title that she wants is not intern, but best friend. So best friend of the podcast, Julia Argy, who often writes our blog posts for us and is just a huge help. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Casper, one of the things I love about you is your... Hair. Um, Eyes. <laughs> nose. Those are three of the things. A fourth thing that I love about you. My butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.